all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm Karen Brown with Dr. Michelle Owens, specialist in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN at UMMC, and surgical pathologist Dr. Allie Brown. Today's topic, cervical cancer. How common is it? What causes it? Symptoms, diagnosing, screenings, treatment, survival rate. Ask your questions or get your comments ready and call 1-877-MPB-RING. 1-877-672-7464. You can also email us, women at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after news from NPR here on MPB Think Radio. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Department of Justice finds that the Chicago Police Department has for years violated the constitutional rights of residents. A year-long investigation has uncovered a pattern or practice of racial bias against African Americans and use of excessive force, sometimes deadly, against people who pose no threat to responding officers. Attorney General Loretta Lynch outlined several reasons today for the systematic violations, lack of analysis, lack of supervision, and lack of training. CPD does not give its officers the training they need to do their jobs safely, effectively, and lawfully. It fails to properly collect and analyze data, including data on misconduct complaints and training deficiencies. And it does not adequately review use of force incidents to determine whether force was appropriate or lawful, or whether the use of force could have been avoided altogether. The DOJ's review of the nation's third largest police force began in December of 2015 after dash cam video was released showing a white police officer shooting a black teenager 16 times as he walked away. Three former Takata employees have been indicted. They are charged with concealing defects in the company's airbag inflators. The defects are linked to at least 16 deaths and scores of injuries worldwide. The U.S. federal government's rule that cars and light trucks must continue lowering their emissions of climate-warming greenhouse gases. NPR's Christopher Joyce reports on the decision. The standards will require more fuel-efficient autos and light trucks, starting with those built in 2022. The goal is a fleet-wide average of 36 miles a gallon by 2025. That's 10 miles per gallon above the current fleet average. EPA's efforts to lower greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles began five years ago. The agency set fuel efficiency goals for automakers and now says the technology to meet them is available. EPA originally set a date next April to make its final decision but has decided to act earlier. Auto manufacturers have objected to moving ahead with the standards before the new Trump administration takes office. Christopher Joyce, NPR News. Some major U.S. bank stocks are reporting year-end earnings to date. Here's NPR's Yuki Noguchi. Bank of America and J.P. Morgan both saw an increase in trading revenue following the surprise election of Donald Trump as president. 
Bank stocks saw huge increases in share prices and a run-up in the stock markets following the election on anticipation that the new administration would cut regulation. Wells Fargo is alone in showing worse results during the last quarter of the year. Revenues and profits declined as the company deals with fallout from a scandal over its aggressive sales tactics. During the quarter, the volume of customers opening new credit cards and checking accounts were well below signups last year. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Outgoing Secretary of State John Kerry is trying to reassure Vietnam's leaders of continuity in U.S. foreign policy. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Beijing that Kerry is in Asia on his final diplomatic tour. Speaking at a university in Hanoi, Kerry predicted that the Trump administration will follow the same principles of regional security as the Obama administration. He called for a peaceful resolution to territorial disputes in the South China Sea between China and its neighbors. Former oil executive Rex Tillerson, who's been nominated to succeed Kerry, says that China's island building in the South China Sea must stop and China should be denied access to those islands. China's foreign ministry responded by saying that China can do whatever it likes on its sovereign territory and notes that Tillerson also spoke of the U.S. and China's shared interests. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Beijing. A majority of lawmakers in the U.S. House are clearing the way to begin drafting legislation to repeal Obamacare. The procedural vote was 235 to 188. Attempts to repeal have already been approved by the Senate. Traffic-related deaths reportedly surged 8 percent in the first nine months of 2016. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says the numbers went up as more motorists were on the roads. The increase in fatalities is heightening concerns because it comes at a time when more automakers are equipping their vehicles with sophisticated safety technology. U.S. stocks are higher with the Dow gaining 17 points. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from Avalara, tax automation for businesses of all sizes. Avalara works to simplify sales tax and other business taxes with real-time rates and automatic filing at avalara.com, A-V-A-L-A-R-A.com. This is Southern Remedy for Women with Dr. Michelle Owens on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, women at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. Hey, everybody. Good morning. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens and Dr. Allie Brown. And this is Southern Remedy for Women, as you just heard. Good morning to both of you. How are you all doing? Happy New Year. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Happy New Year to you, Karen. We Happy Brown, New Year what's already. that look on your face? She I, has- like, I like the new music. I love it. It just seems intense and professional, See, just so like funny. me and Dr. Owens are. So here's the thing. So oh, last She and I. So last week... We didn't get to, you didn't get to Happy New Year because you were dealing with Snowmageddon. Yeah. Ice Mageddon. Ice and Snowmageddon. The two days of winter. Indeed. Sweet Mageddon. Yes. And um, Dr. Brown didn't have an opportunity to hear our new our new fancy music. I love so, it. So, yeah. I mean, the harmonicas are good, too. We yeah, like so the for the three of us, it's Happy New Year. Yeah. Happy but, New Year in, in our little group. Happy New Year. But it's not too late to say Happy New Year to everyone. Not at all. Still time to get those resolutions in. Parking lots at the gyms are full. 
Dr. Brown, you teach some. I taught my yes, class last that. night. It was packed. It was like I'll the biggest bet. class I ever had. And then I taught a class this morning that was well attended as well. It's January. Mm-hmm. Everybody is it. on it. I, I love it. Yeah. And I just hope that for all those people who have started their New Year's resolutions um, that are leading them to healthier lives, that they, you know, stick with them past that you the make end it of to February. <laughs> Absolutely. Because February's coming. <laughs> and Valentine's Day. So you want to look your best for Valentine's Day. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. January is the month that I don't work out. Oh, because it's too crowded. It's at the too gym. crowded. I can't. And then you have to fi- you have to wait. There is no line. month not to work out. Yeah, I Stop. know. But I just kind of yeah, I do it at home uh, okay, during January. Now January is also another month that's not so um, positive, perhaps, or it can be. Well, actually, but- it is because it's it's so it's it's actually so January among other things. New Year's resolution month is also crowded gym month, but also <laughs> um, cervical health awareness month. So that's that's so that is positive. Be aware Absolutely. of your healthy cervix. It's very positive. How healthy is your cervix? That's right. I think that's a good question. And if you, if that question has been posed to you and you don't know the answer, I would say that you need to stay tuned because we're going to talk about how you can figure out how healthy your cervix is and also ways to keep your cervix healthy. If you want to know if your cervix is healthy or what you can do to keep it healthier, or if you know your cervix is not very healthy, what you should do now, give Indeed. us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring 877-672-7464, or an email to women at mpbonline.org. What is a healthy cervix? A healthy cervix is a cervix that is protected from cancer, first and foremost. I think that would be the, the ideal one that is protected and also one that uh, that is that gets regular checkups. Um, so I think that's the key to overall cervical health. Um, but I think the other part is, I guess we could start off really simple. What is the cervix? Um, because I don't know that um, that everybody would be totally aware of just the general anatomy. So when you're talking about the female reproductive organs, um, the uterus or the womb where babies uh, stay until they are born. Where where they stay. Where they grow. That's where they hang out. It's the baby hotel. Where they grow and develop um, until they're born. So that's the uterus. Um, And the cervix is actually a portion of the uterus that is the opening or the, um, yeah, the opening to the So when you have those horrible labor pains, that's why, because the uterus is opening. So, so the horrible labor pains are related in part to contractions. So the fact that the, the muscle, because the uterus is a, is a muscle, it's a really big muscle. And as those muscles contract to cause the cervix or that opening to kind of continue to open in preparation for the birth process. Um, yeah, that can be, that's a little uncomfortable for those of us who've experienced it. We're sitting around this table. It smarts. Yes. It it does for a sure. A little uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little, but bearable. Yeah. Now, that's why they call it labor and not picnic. Indeed. We, we've heard of certainly ovarian cancer, uterine mm-hmm. cancer, and now cervical and cancer. Cervical cancer. Are yeah. they all related to one another? So, so they are all um, considered. They're all considered uh, cancers of the female reproductive tract. And um, so while they're not all the same, 
because they actually are cancers that develop or that particularly affect certain portions of the female reproductive tract. So we were talking about the uterus or what some people call the womb. Um, So there can be cancer that develops there inside the uterus. If it's in the lining of the uterus, that's what uh, people here uh, referred to as endometrial cancer because the endometrium is the inside layers of the uterus. Um, there can be uh, tumors that develop or cancers that develop in the actual muscular portion of the uterus or the outer portions of the uterus. And those are typically uh, like sarcomas or leiomyosarcomas are one of those types of cancers. Um, If it affects the actual ovaries, then that's where ovarian cancer comes in. Um, And women may not even know this, but there are also cancers that develop primarily in the fallopian tubes. So you can have fallopian tube cancer, which is also... I've never heard of that. Is it rather rare? It is a thing. It's rare. But um, you can also get cancers that originate in the fallopian tubes Um, They behave very much like ovarian cancers, and the tubes and the ovaries kind of hang out together. They're they're very close together. Um, But the tubes are really what kind of connects the ovaries to the uterus, and that's where the eggs actually travel in order to get into the uterus for conception to occur. So um, the concept is um, that all of these are GYN cancers, Um, But depending on where it's located or where it originates, then they have different terms. And they actually behave very differently. Cervical cancer behaves differently than ovarian cancer. Um, And so really part of the cervical health awareness, and I don't want to just focus on cervical cancer alone, because there are other things that can happen to um, to a cervix, um, we're talking about infections and other things that can also infect, uh, that can also affect the cervix. Um, but cervical cancer, of course, is by far the most serious um, and and the most concerning. But fortunately, is also very preventable. And um, so I think if there's going to be one big take home message today that I think the listening audience should hear and hopefully will take away from the next, you know, few segments that we do in the upcoming hour is that, um, yes, there are uh, risks and there are things that um, can happen and cervical cancer is very common. um, And in many instances, people die from it. Um, But it is one of the more preventable types of cancers um, that affect women. And I think that's the good news. That is good news. Good screening. There's a good screening screen. Is there a screening for ovarian cancer or for uterine cancer? So there, there are screening tests that are available for ovarian cancer, but there haven't been screening tests that have been shown to be, um, really applicable are great across a broad spectrum of people. So in certain circumstances, we use, um, like, for example, with ovarian cancer, most women um, or most people may be familiar with a blood test that we can do called a CA-125, which is a, um, a blood test that can be drawn, and we measure the levels 
in a person's bloodstream, and if it's elevated, that may indicate that they could be at risk for ovarian cancer. So sometimes, I think more commonly what it's used for is if a person has the diagnosis, then you can use those levels or monitoring those levels to actually see if they're getting a response to their treatment or their chemotherapy, et cetera. That's probably the better use as opposed to trying to use it to pick out those people who actually have cancer. By picking out people who have elevated CA125s, you can pick out people who are at risk, or that does kind of increase your risk. But there are so many other things that can give you an abnormal CA125 that aren't cancer, that it's not quite as good of a screening test as we'd like it to be. I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in many of the other areas for female cancers um, to be able to find a test that works on, that works as, as well as, like, say, for example, the pap smear, which is the screening test for cervical cancer. Yeah, CA20, CA125, which measures just a protein in the blood, um, it's not something that would detect early cancer. Usually, as Dr. Owen said, it's used to monitor cancer treatment. And if you have endometriosis or any sort of inflammation in your belly, anything, appendicitis, Mm -hmm. doesn't even have to be the female tract, it's going to be elevated. So it's not a great test. We're going to take our first break of the show. If you have questions about... uh, Your cervix. (laughs) Yeah, that. (laughs) Your cervix or your other lady parts. <laughs> or or, your, or someone you love lady parts. Yeah. Indeed. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. One eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. Inauguration Day is right around the corner, and Chapter 1 of a new administration is set to begin. As stories take shape, NPR will be here with coverage you can depend on to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. On the next Fit to Eat, I'm going to show you how to make butter bean soup with ham and some other butter bean recipes. Registered dietitian Rebecca Turner will show us how to make a healthier corn dog. We travel to the Wise Family Farm in Pontotoc, Mississippi to see their butter bean harvest, and we have a very special guest, State Senator from District 49, Sean Tyndale, to be here and help me put it all together. So join us. Saturday afternoon at 1.30 on MPB TV. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, women at mpbonline.org.
This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens and Dr. Allie Brown. We're talking about cervical cancer today. We invite your phone calls. And let me say, you know, it's a rather personal subject. So if you'd like to call in, you can make up a name. We don't have to know your real name or where you're from even. If they say where you're from, you can say, I'm from Brookhaven, when you're really from Tupelo, whatever. Just we want that you works. to call with a question, a comment. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring, eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. All right, back to cervical cancer. What are the symptoms? You know, it's interesting. Um, they they are kind of variable. Um, some women will have. Um, and, and the problem with cervical cancer, I think, is that usually when it's in its earliest stages, many times there aren't any, which is why the screening part is so important. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but um, so some women can have um, bleeding, um, abnormal vaginal bleeding, not like related to like menses or, or periods or anything like that, but for example, bleeding with intercourse, um, sometimes they can have, they can, um, either them or their partner can sense a mass, but by that time, again, if it's something that you can feel, it's usually pretty far advanced, um, and there aren't very many people who actually, um, perform examinations on themselves it's really hard to do that you can't most people can't feel their cervix um so that's kind of part of the reason why having a provider perform that by manual exam or using their hands to check the cervix in addition to that speculum exam where they we use that uh, instrument to place into the vagina so that we can actually see the cervix really well that seems to start out in the freezer right before it goes <laughs> Well, they warming drawers. Yeah, so there are warming drawers for those people who are scared about that. I guess that. I've never experienced that part. Look, and I run, I at least, if mine don't come from a warming drawer, I always run warm water over it first <laughs> to make sure that it's not, that it doesn't like Okay, yeah, I can, we, we don't I can. usually talk about symptoms because it's a big, that's one of the big wins probably in the past 50 years or so is that women have pap smears and yeah. so they don't present in, so often yeah. with advanced cancer as they used to. And we have Kay on the phone calling in from Memphis who I think is going to talk about um, pelvic exams. Hang on a second. Kay, are you there? Hello? Hi. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Well, one of my questions is about uh, being a woman. The other is I, I'm living in a woman's body, but it's not about being a woman. So anyway. Okay. Um, let me first say I'm a retired medical social worker, worked 15 years in the field in, in New Orleans before we moved to Memphis. So I keep up with medicine and nutrition and exercise. I'll, I'll, you know, I keep up with what's going on in the world. So now my first question is when I go to a new doctor and fill out the form, they ask when I've had my last pelvic exam. And I went through the menopause and didn't even know it. I haven't had a pelvic exam in 20 years, 15. Do I still need to have a pelvic exam? So, um, so. Okay, that's a great question. Um, I'm, I'm 86. I have had absolutely no. I went through being a woman the easiest any woman could ever want. Well, that's great. It sounds like you had a good time, and then you transitioned on into the menopause and didn't have any problems afterwards, and that's well, fantastic. I, I, have, 
I have been sexually inactive ever since my husband died on the operating table, thanks to the damn, excuse me, hospital, <laughs> and in 1985. So I have been sexually inactive since 1985. Some people hard, think that's hard to believe, but I have. So do I still need to be having pelvic exams? So, so okay, that's a great question. And actually, I would say that, yes, you could still benefit from having um, a pelvic exam. Um, it's not... So I think that this is a great question because we have an opportunity to talk to the audience about, you know, the the reasons why we do a pelvic exam. And so, of course, if people are sexually active, you know, we always want to be concerned about um, sexually transmitted infections and those kinds of things. But even if you're not, there's still some valuable information that can be obtained from having pelvic exams. And so um, they're also, if you continue to have screening for cervical cancer at this point, based on what you've said about your age, you probably would not need that anymore. Um, however, for some women who might have slightly a slightly different history, um, then they may and who might be a little bit younger, then they would still benefit from a cervical cancer screening. The other thing is the bimanual exam because there are some times when just by examination alone we are able to detect um, some abnormality in the female reproductive tract. So some abnormality of the uterus or the your female sexual organs, even if they're retired, that there can still be some changes that occur that might warrant further investigation or more workup. So you absolutely could benefit from a pelvic exam. Um, it wouldn't have to be something that is tremendously invasive, but I do think that it would be beneficial for you to at least have one um, and then let your physician, you can talk to your physician about the frequency with which you have them going forward. Okay, well, let me ask about this. I, I, I believe in getting doctors who know what they're doing, excuse me. <laughs> Having been in the field for so many years, I have some opinions, but I'll keep those to myself. Uh, but uh, is this something... Well, I stick I stick with the real professional. I have a love of cardiologists. The only thing is I can't get to him. I was in the hospital. He said, see me in seven to ten days. You know, I cannot get a, a, an appointment with him. I've done everything for 28 days. They will not give me an appointment. So I'm sort of aggravated about that. But anyway, what I'm saying, do I really need to go? to a specialist or can my so-called primary care physician do it? So um, most primary care physicians are trained to be able to do a pelvic exam. And as I said, because there, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of extra um, that you would need, I think it would be perfectly acceptable. I wouldn't recommend, however, that you... Um, that you ask your cardiologist to do that. Um, oh, no, no, I wouldn't ask that. Yeah, because they usually wouldn't do do that no, kind no. of stuff. He but might look at you sideways. <laughs> but your regular primary care doctor could definitely do of, that. He's one of the best in there, or probably the best in Memphis, and he stays so busy. But when I went to him the first time, he said, Lady, you don't know how well how well you're doing to be an 86-year-old woman. I'll see you in six months. That's wonderful. <laughs> it sounds like but it might take you six months to get to him. <laughs> well, but he he but I wound up in the hospital Christmas Day and stayed for three. But they did a great work up and my heart and my lungs and everything. Anyway, but the other thing I want to ask about is somewhat related. 
is I have been put on a channel blocker, and I can't get to anyone. Do you know Dr. Shiseido in Jackson? Actually, we do know him. We, we know him. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Okay. But see, I call he's He's my doctor. I, when I have a problem, I call him. But I forgot to add, he told me what the beta blocker, metoprolol is. Metoprolol. Mm-hmm. Metoprolol, yeah. I, I, can, I can pronounce all the others, and I don't know why I get stumbling on that one. But um, he referred to the fact that, uh, alluded to the fact about the calcium. And I want to know, should I restrict my calcium intake if I am having a problem with excess calcium in my blood? I guess that's just a simple way to put it. Well, if you, so if you have an issue with elevated calcium levels, then you may want to limit your extra calcium intake. But I think it's really important that you see your primary doctor to have them determine what the reason is for you having elevated calcium in your blood. Now, that's totally different from a calcium channel blocker that someone may prescribe for you for hypertension or something of that nature. But if you do have a problem, and there are many different reasons why people can have elevated calcium in their blood, what we call elevated serum calcium, um, if you have, a, you need to be worked up for it. But number two, if they've told you that your values are high, then it's reasonable for you to limit your uh, calcium intake. Like, don't take extra. But that doesn't mean stop drinking milk and all that other great stuff. You can still resume a regular diet, but just don't take any extra uh, supplementation. Kay, thank you so much for your phone call. If you'd like to give us a call, we're talking about cervical cancer today. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. 877-672-7464 or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. When someone gets a pap smear, what exactly is happening? So what happens in a pap smear is that, first of all, we, as I mentioned, the speculum, which is the name of the, the instrument that we use to be able to visualize the cervix. So that's placed into the vagina. We look at the cervix. Um, and so what happens first is we make sure that it looks normal on the outside. And then we um, take two different instruments. One is a, a spatula, so it looks like a tongue depressor almost. And we use that to scrape some cells off of the outside of the cervix. Now, I say scrape, but it's, it's really just to brush it along the edge of the cervix. And what happens is those cells come off very easily. Um, So this is not something that is abrasive or harsh in any way because the word scrape sounds a little harsher. Um, But it's not like scraping your skin, but it's as if you rubbed across your skin with, you know, a cloth or something of that nature. So we use that spatula to take some cells off of the outside of the cervix. And then we also use a small brush um, and we put that right into the the cervical canal or the opening, the hole that connects the inside of the uterus to the outside of the body. And we use a brush to get some of the cervix cells or to sample some of the cells from the inside of the cervix. So that sometimes feels like a, a pinching. Sometimes women will, um, will say that they feel kind of a little pinch or a cramp 
sometimes when you use that little brush. Um, Of the things that people tend to be sensitive about during the exam, that's probably the one that I most frequently hear people say that they can actually feel. The other one is just like a touch. Very brief. Yeah, it's, and I've never had anybody to be traumatized by. (laughs) No, seriously, I think that's really important because I think there's a lot of anxiety. And I mean, this is a part of what we do every day. And I have yet to have a person who hops up on the table and is like, yes, let's do this pap smear. I think um, all women have some degree of um, reluctance or hesitation. It's very personal. It's a very private place. Um, It's very intimate. And then the other thing is that, you know, this is a process where we're screening for cancer. And I think when you realize that what you're getting is a screening test for cancer, you know, people want it to come out well, well, I so. think it's great that you just said what it is, because that's another thing. The fear is that your doctor is inside of you poking around. Yeah. And, and you can't see you what don't we're know doing. What he's doing. Exactly. They don't know, you don't know what we're doing. And so. you feel something. It's like, what is that? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to be feeling that? And those and, and the truth is that the exam, the, the things that we use, we try techniques to make them as comfortable as possible for patients. Things that patients can do to make the exam less uncomfortable, like the whole concept of trying to relax, which, you know, is very... I will be the first to admit it's very difficult to do when you know that somebody's about to put the little duckbill thing in there. So it's hard to relax, but to relax and try to keep yourself calm and relax your legs and relax your bottom, all of those things will kind of help to make it better. Um, but yeah, this and and that's kind of the thing that I think we don't talk about as much is like how much anxiety people feel going toward this. I mean, there's there's anxiety about going to get, I have a girlfriend who's an oncologist and every year she talks about her anxiety about going to get her mammogram. No history of breast cancer, but it's just going into the pancake machine and she doesn't like that. Like every year it's one of those things that creates angst. And like I said, I've yet to have a person who hops up on the table and is like, yes, I'm glad. I've been waiting all year for this. Yeah, I'm I'm excited because because most people aren't excited about it. And it is, in, in, in some instances, a little uncomfortable. Um, but I think one of the things that we can do to make it better as providers is just to let people know what the heck we're doing. Because they can't see. You can't see down there. You don't know what's going on. So telling people um, what we're doing as we do it is also helpful. Because I have really been surprised at how few people really know and understand when they get an exam or a GYN exam, what has really happened? What's really taken place? We need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to find out how often you should have a pap smear and whether it depends on how old you are. If you want to give us a call, the number is 877-MPB-RING, 877-672-7464. We'll be back on Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. Inauguration Day is right around the corner, and Chapter 1 of a new administration is set to begin. As stories take shape, NPR will be here with coverage you can depend on to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. 
This is Scott Beretta, host of Highway 61. Each week on the show, we explore a different aspect of the blues tradition. Join me every Saturday night at 10 p.m. and Sunday at 6 p.m. here on MPB. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, women at mpbonline.org. back. Thanks for listening to Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown here with Dr. Michelle Owens and Dr. Allie Brown talking about surgical, no, we're talking about cervical <laughs> cancer today. I said surgical pathologist, see, and I said surgical again. That's how that happened. Oh, okay. that was anyway, thank, you thank you for thinking of me. <laughs> if you want to give us a call, 877-MPB-RING, 877-672-7464. If you don't want to call, send an email to women at mpbonline.org. We want to find out how often you should be screened, meaning how often should you get a pap smear, Dr. Brown, and does it depend on how old you are? It does, and the guidelines have changed recently. So it used to be kind of, we said, when you start being sexually active, you should come in every year and have a pelvic exam and a, and a pap smear, but that changed in the past Not few years. Not so anymore. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So actually screening guidelines have that pap smear should start at 21. Before, yeah. If you're sexually active or before you're sexually active. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. 21 years old. So 21. And when you're 21 to 29, you should have a pap every three years. Now, here's the question. Pap smears for people who are not sexually active. Mm-hmm. What about them, lady? Do they need them? <laughs> well, I once saw a Seinfeld episode where a woman said she got gonorrhea from a tractor. So it could be. No. But anyway. <laughs> Once every the three guidelines years. say regardless of reproductive uh, of. of what stage you're in, if you're sexually active or not, they start at yeah. 21. Well, so, and and the other issue, though, is that obtaining the sample for a pap smear can be difficult in a person who is not sexually active mm-hmm. um, or who has never had sex. Um, so, and the, and the, one of the risk factors for cervical cancer is, um, you know, early age at um, intercourse, multiple sexual partners, um, but sexual activity is important because um, overwhelmingly the majority of cervical cancers are the result of um, an infection with a virus um, called the human papillomavirus or HPV. And there are certain types of HPV that are known to predispose women to cervical cancer or to cause cancer. So there are some, then this is, this is actually unique because most of the viruses that we get don't cause cancer. They make us sick. We get a little bit better. Sometimes they cause infections. They may be infections that can come back. If you think about this whole, like, like having 
uh, shingles. So it's the concept of you've had a viral exposure and then later on it gets reactivated, it comes back. Um, But with cervical cancer, it's unique because we know that overwhelmingly cervical cancer is caused by infection with human papillomavirus and those viruses are, you know, transmitted through sexual contact. Um, And some of the people in listening audience may remember when we had Dr. Jackson here, who is the um, head and neck cancer doctor, and she was talking about how that same virus, the HPV or human papillomavirus, um, is also um, a big player in head and neck cancers um, that she sees. So just something to think about, like this viral infection that predisposes people to cancer. Um, And those changes that you see, those precancerous changes that occur on a very subtle level that that we're not able to detect with our naked eye and that we as patients or as individuals can't detect in our own bodies, those subtle changes that are on the cellular level. Um, when they when it starts to happen, that's why the pap smear is great at picking up those abnormal cells and saying, hey, something's going on here. We actually have gotten the technology is good enough that we can actually determine if those types of viruses that do cause cancer um, are even present um, and, and whether or not patients have been exposed to them. We're going to take a call, and then we'll get back to how often, as you get older, should you have a pap smear. But Letty is calling in from Charleston. Letty, is Charleston outside of Clarksdale? Uh, it's about uh, 40 miles. It's closer to Baysville, south of Baysville. Oh, okay. All right. Just wanted to get a, a picture yeah. in my mind on the map. So, yeah. Letty, go ahead with your question. Uh, yes, I do have a question. Um, if you have a complete uh, hysterectomy, how often you still have to do a cervical uh, exam if you have to do it? So that's a good question, um, Letty. It, it, so the answer is it kind of depends. So if you are a person who has had um, normal pap smears and um, then you have a hysterectomy where, and when you say complete hysterectomy, sometimes that's a little confusing because some people consider um there are lots of when women have hysterectomies, sometimes they leave the ovaries in, sometimes they take the ovaries out, sometimes they leave the cervix in, sometimes the cervix is um, taken out. If the cervix is left in, then you should continue your screening in the normal way. Because if the cervix is left in, then you still are at risk for cervical cancer. If the cervix is removed, and this is actually a great question for, for women to ask their doctors if you don't know, if you've had a hysterectomy, Find out if you still got your cervix and find out if you still have your ovaries. Most people who have their ovaries taken out, it, you know, will know if they were not already in menopause. Um, and most women who have hysterectomies after menopause will usually have their ovaries taken out as well. But I think those are good questions to ask your doctor in case you don't know whether you still have your ovaries and if you still have your cervix. Um, but if the cervix is removed and you've had a negative history, then many of those women will not need to continue with pap smears. That doesn't mean you don't go to your doctor anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't go get exams. It doesn't mean we don't still do pelvic exams, but you will not need to continue with, um, with pap smears. But again, 
your pap smear history and what you had going on before would really dictate that because there are still some, sometimes the vaginal cells that are left can have some changes that could potentially lead to cancer. And those can sometimes be picked up um, with a pap smear test or a pap test can be used to pick up some of those. So there are some women who still are recommended that they continue um, for a short period of time for the, for that reason, based on your history. Lady, thank you very much for your phone call and your question. If you'd like to give us a call, the number is 877-MPB-RING, 877-672-7464. You can also send an email if you'd prefer to women at mpbonline.org. Because we're talking about the health of the cervix, not necessarily cervical cancer, if a woman becomes pregnant and she's just found out she's pregnant and she goes to the doctor for the first time, is her cervix being checked or is there is there a reason during pregnancy to check the cervix as it may be related to her ability to deliver? In just in general, like from the very beginning? Yeah, it, well, in the beginning, do you mm-hmm. check the cervix and then later in the pregnancy is there any reason to check so, it? So yes. So so typically um and and again this varies based on history and other things. So typically at your initial prenatal visit, so the time when you come for your first visit, you get a full history and physical. That should include a breast exam and it should also include a full pelvic exam. For women who are at the age of 21 and beyond, those women will also usually get a pap smear um, depending on, you know, if where they are in the process, because you don't have to have a pap smear every single year in every case. So say, for example, it's a 21 year old woman who comes in, she would get full history and physical, which includes a breast exam. It would also include a pap smear and it would also include a pelvic exam. When we do that exam, we are assessing the cervix and also the structures, uh, the female reproductive structures that we can feel. Um, and then going forward throughout pregnancy, we usually don't have to do a pelvic exam unless there's something going on that the patient is concerned about or has a problem with. If they have certain symptoms, then that may dictate that we do an exam. To, and then we fast forward toward the end of pregnancy. And so as you get closer to the end of pregnancy, usually around that 36 to 37 week mark, so around um, three to four weeks before your anticipated date of delivery, then we usually will start checking the cervix then to see if the cervix is starting to dilate or to open in preparation for delivery of the baby. I, I just wondered whether women feel uncomfortable if they're having a pap smear and they're pregnant and they feel that pinching, you know, or are they afraid more, it's going to make them lose the baby or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so the answer to that is no, it doesn't. Um, as a matter of fact, there are um, women who undergo pap smears and in some cases they have to, if there's an abnormality that's found, they um, can also have what's called colposcopy, which is a really big word for basically saying a higher level pap smear where we look with a microscope and, um, you know, try to assess for any abnormalities that we have found. And um, so, no, that's doing a pap smear and having that um, that brush and the, the spatula doesn't increase your risk at all for loss of your pregnancy. 
The cervix is actually pretty resilient. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing, Karen, you asked that question, but I did want to also say, because we were talking about um, with the caller who called in before Letty, who was asking about what people need and and timings and all those other things. And it's specifically in a patient who's had a hysterectomy. And we also had a patient who called who was in her 80s. So with respect to pap smear screening, though, you know, after 65... We don't, um, then women don't have to continue to get pap smears. So um, that's another thing. So there's an end point where you can kind of nudge toward the finish line. And mm-hmm. there, so there is like a an ultimate stopping point where women um, don't have to necessarily get pap smears but anymore. I think something that confuses people that's worth clarifying is that a pap smear is not the same thing as a pelvic exam. It's a component of it. So when Dr. Owens told Letty, that she should still, but that was Letty, to come in and have a pelvic exam. And now she's saying don't have a pap smear. She means the examination where they feel for any abnormalities. Yeah. She doesn't need that brushing where they look at the cells, but right. she still needs to be checked out. Now, yeah. you were telling us before the break, Dr. Brown, that once every three years between the ages of 21 and 29, does that change then after age 30? Yeah, starting at age 30, women 30 to 65 should have a pap every five years, along with testing for that HPV virus that Dr. Owens had talked about. They call that co-testing because you get the actual cells and you also get the the virus sample. They look in the sample to see if the virus is present. So the alternative is to either keep on having that pap test every three years or go out to five years with that co-testing. We don't do the HPV testing or it's not recommended in women in their 20s because the HPV virus is is pretty uh, what we call ubiquitous, which means it's kind of everywhere. You know, I mean, you're likely to have a positive result, but not have the precancerous type of lesion or not to have a high risk lesion just to have what we call a low-risk lesion, which really can just be followed and eliminated by the body naturally. Yeah, and I think that's... I'm glad you said that, because that's one of the things that's Thanks. really neat about this. When, when, So this is a virus, and our bodies, because of the way that we're designed, have the ability to fight off viruses, right? So our bodies recognize that we have this... We've been infect, infected with or exposed to a, a virus, and so then our bodies, our immune system takes off and says, hey, we've got to get rid of you. And so they fight off this virus. And overwhelmingly, um, most people who are exposed to this virus, because over 75% of women who have sex, uh, men, men and women who have sex, um, have been exposed to the human papillomavirus. Okay? So over 75% of people, doesn't matter how many times you've done it, have been exposed to the virus. Our bodies usually fight this virus off. And usually when our bodies fight the virus off, it wins. And so the virus doesn't go on to cause cancer or cause us problems. But that is one of the reasons why people who have problems with their immune system are particularly vulnerable. So, for example, if you have HIV disease, those people are more vulnerable to this Um, human papillomavirus. They don't have the immunity to be able to fight it off in the same way. Um, And other people who have altered problems or issues with their immune system can be vulnerable or are considered at higher risk. 
We need to take our last break of the show. You still have time to call in with your question or comment at 877-MPB-RING, 877-672-7464, or send an email to women at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. Inauguration Day is right around the corner, and Chapter 1 of a new administration is set to begin. As stories take shape, NPR will be here with coverage you can depend on to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Are you resolved to lose a few pounds this year? How about a few thousand pounds through the Public Radio Vehicle Donation Diet? Donate your old car, truck, or RV to support this station and drop a lot of unwanted weight from your garage in a matter of days. And you'll feel great because you're also supporting public radio in the biggest of ways. It's easy, fast, and you may even earn a tax write-off. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. News you can trust in radio built around you. Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, women at mpbonline.org. We're back. Stop talking. Stop talking, Dr. Brown. Dr. Owens, I'm yelling at her. All right. Don't yell at me. This is our last segment. (laughs) The last segment of Southern Remedy for Women. You have a chance to give us a call, but you better hurry. 877-MPB-RING-1-877-672-7464. We are talking about cervical cancer. Just got this email. I haven't heard you mention anything about the BRCA gene test. I was wondering if you would mention this and explain about it. Sure. Well, we hadn't mentioned it because we are focusing really on cervical cancer and the BRCA or BRCA gene is a gene that's implicated most strongly in breast and ovarian cancer. But so I think we, it's still worth talking about. Yeah, sure. Quick. So when we talked about ovarian cancer, we talked about it a lot. So Dr. Owens, she still wants to talk about it. Talk. About about, about BRCA? Oh, well, okay. So, so BRCA, um, they're human genes, so they're made up into our chromosomes, our genetic um, material, and they have been known to increase the risk of female breast and ovarian cancers. So for people who have, you know, a lot of times we talk about um, family history um, and the number of first-degree relatives are the people who are the closest. So the closer they are to you in relation, um, the higher your risk tends to be because the single greatest risk factor for breast cancer is really just age, right? So the Being a woman live, is number one. Well, that well, yeah, that's higher. 
but sure. men, but men do get breast sure. cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, for people who have, um, familial high, uh, rates of cancer in their families, in a first cancer, degree relative, ovarian in a first yeah. degree relative, Which means so your like your mom, mom yeah. your sister. sister. Yeah. Hey, we're thinking, I love oh, you, Dr. See there, that, you were screaming at me two minutes ago, but in um, a happy way, I'm screaming that I loved you. Then that, then that testing, um, for that mutation in the gene, um, is usually recommended or discussed um, as helping women who may have that strong family history to determine their own risk. Um, And some women uh, have made other decisions about um, whether they want to prophylactically or before they actually develop cancer or get the diagnosis, have their breasts removed or have their ovaries removed. You know, Angelina Jolie made that decision. Um, Then that that's kind of where that comes from so and with the screening uh how that screening really is determined whether it's appropriate or not is best done by a genetic counselor so your physician can refer you to a genetic counselor who really calculates your risk by taking a thorough history okay and recommending it we're going to move on to our next question because we're running out of time please explain the risks of skipping a period by taking birth control pills and and skys e-n-s-k-y-c-e Anyway, taking birth controls back to back, birth control pills back to back. How often can this be done safely? Oh I'm 38 God. and have been on BC birth control. birth control. Thank you for 20 years. I have a full pelvic exam yearly and usually mm-hmm. an ultrasound due to a borderline ovarian tumor seven years ago. Okay, so um, so here's the deal with the question, and I'll try to clarify exactly what it is. So the question is just if you don't have a period because you're on continuous birth control. What are the risks of that? And the answer is that there there are essentially none. Um, there are several different birth control preparations, which now have given women the opportunity to go for longer intervening periods of time without having to have a regular menstrual cycle. So there's one that gives you the opportunity to take it for three months, I think, and then cycle. Um, there's another one um, that uh, can allow a woman to basically be on continuous uh, birth control um, and have one period a year. Well, think about and the depot no, shot yeah. and all that and stuff. So yeah. there's no there's no overall risk to your health um, by doing that. Um, so, I, but I do think you're spot on. If you have a history of a borderline tumor, you should continue to have your annual exams. Um, but it's not related to um, your period in any way, and they are hormones that are produced in your body, the estrogen and progesterone. So from that standpoint, no additional risks associated with that. All right, we only have like a minute left. Can you do a quick prevention? Absolutely. So things that women need to know about prevention of cervical cancer. Big things, one, get screened regularly. That's those pap smears um, in accordance with the guidelines. Um, Number two, the other thing would be um, the vaccination because the vaccine will actually give you immunity um, to the um, most common cancer-causing HPV viruses. And it also will protect you against the benign ones, which cause the vaccines. So... Basically, if you want it, you can have it. But the vaccine is recommended for children from the ages of 9 to 26. Boys and girls. If you're beyond 26, you can do that. That's why I said children, boys and girls, Mm -hmm. Um, because little boys can spread it, and they can also be at risk not for cervical cancer but for penile cancer. Next thing that people might not think about is to stop smoking. 
because that is another thing that will greatly decrease your risk for developing cervical cancer. Stop smoking. Thank you both so yeah. much. Southern Remedy for Women is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. It is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by generous support from the MPB Foundation. Today's show is engineered by Jay White. Our call screener is Alexis Neely. For Dr. Michelle Owens, for Dr. Allie Brown, I'm Karen Brown. Join us next Friday at 11 for Southern Remedy for Women and stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio. forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. A large, cool front extending from Texas all the way into the Carolinas, really stalling out around the I-20 corridor this afternoon. So north of that, we may see some shower activity. That'll be the best chance. And the cooler temperatures will be in the north, further in the central and southern portion.